0: It's an interesting uh, day today. This is Fat Tuesday. Anybody got on their Mardi Gras Gras, uh, beads? Uh, I don't see any. Um, Maybe you can find some before the day's over. This is the day to eat fat uh, before we start Lent tomorrow. Now, that sounds a little strange even for me to say. Uh, because I was raised as a Texas Baptist, and I didn't know what Lent was. I didn't know what Ash Wednesday was. Um, I did have some Catholic friends growing up, and they did weird things this time of year. Um, But over the last several years, I had the chance to get more acquainted with traditions that were not my own. I went to uh, Baltimore in... uh, the summer of 2008, I thought that was going to be the final uh, career change in my life, uh, to University Baptist Church in a city that's historically Catholic, uh, predominantly Catholic. And I went to a, a good Baptist church, but it had kind of a Baptist methodist uh, personality. And one of the things that I discovered uh, after not being there very long was that I was supposed to lead the Ash Wednesday service. Which, in which we did uh, the imposition of ashes. Now, uh, that was really strange for me. Uh, I had to go, I went down the street and uh, talked to the Catholic priest, a friend of mine by that time, and I said, Now, how do I mix these things up? Uh, What do I do? And he was so kind and sweet uh, with his Baptist colleague to tell me how to uh, uh, take uh, some ashes, and I had to borrow those from the Presbyterian church. Um, And so I got the ashes and I had to get the right mixture of water and uh, then on that uh, Wednesday night uh, we had the service and people came forward and um, I began to say to them you are dust uh, and to dust you shall return and dipping my thumb and marking the ashes on their forehead although a good many of our Baptists still preferred it on their hand. What an odd thing to do for a Baptist. Uh, but I'd studied it, I'd read it, I'd looked at it and decided that, well, this is not a sacrament. It's not a sacrament in the Catholic Church. It is a very long-held tradition uh, that prior to Easter, the 40 days uh, commemorating Jesus' time in the wilderness, uh, the church went to back to its own wilderness of repentance and began that with uh, this thing we call Ash Wednesday. Uh, using the symbolism of ash uh, to remind us of the dust from which we have come and where we are going. I found that um, over the years uh, that I did that, that we had Ash Wednesday services and that I had the privilege of um, leading in that service and touching the foreheads or the hands of my members, that there was something profound about that, something that touched the depths that uh, very few things that I have done in ministry uh, had done. I think that is something that we all need to think about. Ash Wednesday is about a reflection on our mortality. It's about repentance of sins. And it's about the remembrance of Christ's victory. All of those in any tradition of Christianity should be uh, hallowed and uh, observed. But I have another reason today why I think it's interesting for us and perhaps helpful to think about um, this season we're about to enter. The Lenten season and Ash Wednesday itself. I teach ministers and that's what Truett is all about. Teaching ministers. And we all tend to work with those going into ministry at the beginning of the process. But what concerns me more and more is helping ministers get on to the end of the process, to endure throughout a lifetime of ministry. There are all kinds of statistics out there and studies, and some seem to exaggerate. But, for instance, the Alban Institute and Fuller Seminary a few years ago did a study that showed that 50% of ministers drop out of ministry in the first five years. And many may never go back to church again. How to help ministers endure and to remain in ministry is something that I think we need to think more about. Because we are in a world that chews up ministers. We often hear of people who have been done in by the church and by service to the church. And please, I hope you understand today, I'm not here to depress you. I'm not here to drive you away from ministry. I hope that through what we do here today, we get a sense of the real hope in ministry. But make sure that we don't misplace the hope in something that doesn't last. I believe that ministers who endure in ministry face the futility of this world head-on. They face it. They are thoroughgoing realists about this world. It is those who don't face it, I think, that are prone to being knocked off course. Paul says this world has been subject to futility What does futility mean? Well, it means something like seeking without finding. That there should be something there, but you can't find it. It somehow has become elusive. It's frustration. We get the the best example of this in the book of Ecclesiastes. Koheleth tells us about futility. I'm so thankful for this book, by the way. I've spent the last uh, several weeks doing my quiet times and devotionals in Ecclesiastes, which is kind of an odd book to turn to. But it matched my mood um, in these recent weeks. He writes, though, in chapter 3, 19 through 22, and I, I'm reading it from the message. I like Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a, a way of bringing out the meaning he studied with W. F. Albright in Baltimore, by the way, before he went into his thirty-year pastorate up in Bel Air, Maryland. And I think he really does grasp the language. Ecclesiastes three nineteen to twenty-two, and then down chapter four one through three. Let me just read this: Humans and animals come to the same end. Humans die, animals die. We all breathe the same air. So there's, no, there's really no advantage in being human. None. Everything's smoke. We all end up in the same place. We all came from dust. We all end up as dust. Nobody knows for sure what the human spirit rises to heaven or that the animal spirit sinks to the earth. So I made up my mind that there's nothing better for us men and women than to have a good time in whatever we do that's our lot. Who knows if there's anything else to life? Next I turned my attention to all the outrageous violence that takes place on this planet. The tears of the victims. No one to comfort them. The iron grip of oppressors. No one to rescue the victims from them. So I congratulated the dead, who are already dead instead of living, who are still alive instead of the living who are still alive. But luckier luckier than the dead or the living is the person who has never been, who has never seen the bad business that takes place on this earth. Uh, That'll preach, right? Wow. How did that get in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? Well, I'll tell you the truth. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Because I'm glad somebody thought through this life enough to say what it really looks like just from this plane, just from this horizontal plane. That's what it looks like. That's all we see. And if we really face it and tell the truth, and here is Koheleth, the teacher, saying to us, I, I looked at everything. I've thought this through. I, I was an idealist. I believed in this world. I knew that wisdom would bring me to the right stage. A solution to how to live this life and I've come up with air. I've come up with nothing. Now in other passages he does speak of God. But he's not quite sure what God is doing with this world. So Koheleth is a question. It's a book that opens up the question of our existence in a stark way. But it's absolutely important that ministers go into ministry with absolutely clear eyes about the nature of this world. With a realism about the nature of this world. Abraham knew the nature of this existence. When he was begging God not to destroy Sodom, if even there were just a few people very interesting. Abraham says, now let me take it on myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He had this consciousness of himself as merely the dust of the earth, speaking to his creator. I think that's why you see him able to go up on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22 Kierkegaard wrestled with that whole thing in an entire book called Fear and Trembling. How did he do that? How did he go up to sacrifice his own son? Somehow Abraham knew that he could put his faith in nothing in this world. Even his most proud prize possession in this world. And he was ready to give it away. I don't know how he did that. But somehow he understood dust and ashes. Moses, by the time God finally called him, was a man who had finally come to a kind of truce with this world. He did have enough curiosity to go see the burning bush and to try to see what God wanted. But when God spoke, it was like, what, who, me? Send somebody else? You've got to be kidding. Uh, And over and over again, Moses displays a kind of realism But God can use him. Isaiah, in his famous call, as soon as he accepts the call, here I am, send me, the realism settles in. Nobody's going to listen to you. You're going out into a world that you're going to preach, and they're just not going to hear what you've got to say. Oh, great. Jeremiah, Amos, these were hard-nosed realists about this world. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? I think Paul has a realism about what you're going to face. What we all face in this world. But more than anybody, Jesus is the, the great realist of the New Testament, of the Scripture. Jesus has a complete realism about the world that he came in to save. We see him in his temptations, being tempted at the very point here that he put his faith, he put his trust in the temporal, that he put his trust in the ruling of this world instead of in God himself. And Jesus comes out of that temptation recognizing that he can't put his faith in anything here. It must always be in God. You see him going about his work in a curious kind of way. He tells the parable of the sower. Now, by the way, he's preaching a sermon about preaching a sermon. It's very interesting. He's telling the people, now, this is what's happening right now. A sower's out sowing. Look what I'm doing. And guess what? Three out of four are not going to listen to me. Three out of four are going to fail here. Jesus tells parables like wheat and weeds. He says, You know, I'm out here sowing th- this wonderful word, and I guarantee you it's going to get all mixed up with all kinds of other stuff. And we're not going to be able to sort it out till the end. It's a mess. And then in John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples. And they see a man born blind. And they say, well, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? One of the most fascinating texts in all the scripture, Jesus says, well, neither. It's that God's work might be seen. Jesus refuses to answer that there is a purpose behind this man's blindness. Because he understands the futility of this world. There is no explanation for evil that you can find in the evil itself it is absurd it is something that is the opposite of purpose god has allowed this world has subdued it the scripture says under futility in other words the way paul puts it he lets it the world go its own way but it's an absurdity Because when you move away from God, which means moving away from purpose, moving away from the one who brought order out of chaos, you're moving back into chaos. You're moving into absurdity. There is no answer why the man is born blind other than the fact that God has just let this world go under the curse. You won't find the purpose in the blindness. You find it in the healing. All of these things are to help us understand That we must have a kind of basic assumption about this world. We can't put our faith in anything in this world. This world is a world under a curse. That's what Ash Wednesday is all about. That we face the curse head on. That we're going to die. That everyone here is going to die. Jesus knew that he was dead on arrival in this world. He didn't die on the cross. Only he died every minute he was here. He knew that was coming When he accepted his mission at his baptism, baptism meant for him death. It becomes a primary idea behind Christian baptism that we are buried with him in baptism. We're dying. Everybody that Jesus ever healed during his ministry died, even if they had been raised from the dead. Every one of you is going to die. We are all going to die. And when you experience it in a particularly clear way, maybe with the death of a loved one, it suddenly hits you. Wow. This is pretty final stuff. If we don't face it, again, I'm not trying to depress you. I'm coming to the good stuff in a little bit. (laughs) Just hang in there. Hang in there with me. But if we don't face the futility, then we are at great peril in ministry. We are at peril of shallowness, for one thing. I stood at uh, Oakland Cemetery, Oakwood Cemetery here in Waco, I don't know, 25 years ago. A little girl had been killed in a car wreck on Waco Drive, it was a horrific accident. Somehow, and I can't remember exactly the ties to the family, but I went out of respect. It was a graveside, a very large graveside kind of service. That was the only way to accommodate the crowd. And um, the preacher, I don't know who he was, don't know what his background was. I'm not really trying to, to, to say anything negative about the person. But he delivered the worst funeral sermon I'd ever heard. He got up there and and began to talk about how he was trying to give comfort to the family. And he began to talk about how God wanted that child. That God needed that child. So God took the child out of this world. And if I had been within 25 feet of him, I might have choked the man right there. I was just so angry at hearing that. But, you know, you just move on. The shallowness of that, but that's what happens when we don't face the futility of this world. There was no good answer for the death of that child. There was no uh, putting a sweet face on it. It was a horrible, tragic thing, and it happens all too often in this world. And sometimes families just need to face that. We need to help them face it. Sometimes we can only help them by our silence instead of trying to explain these things. Sometimes when we deny the futility, we we just fall into this kind of shallowness of explanation, of theology, trying to make people feel good. Worse than that, we fall into moral failure. Why do so many ministers fail morally? It's so frustrating to see Christian ministers Given their lives to Christ and to serve the world, and they just fall into these stupid things. It's because they don't take seriously enough their own sin and mortal nature. You know, Billy Graham is in the twilight of his life, and in the middle twentieth century, there was no no greater preacher on the planet. But I think the the greatness of Billy Graham was really in something quite simple besides the fact that all he did was just preach the gospel. He understood implicitly human nature. When the popularity began to grow, when Randolph Hearst said, Puff Graham, and he began to become popular all over the world, Graham put himself on a salary. He knew he could not just handle an infinite amount of money without being corrupted. He surrounded himself with a bunch of faithful friends. And they tried throughout their ministry to hold each other accountable. Because they understood they were prone to failure. And Graham made commitments about how he would not be in a hotel room alone with another woman other than his wife. He made certain personal commitments. His brilliance here is not so much that he was so uh, intelligent that he wowed everybody. It was more that he just understood he was a sinner. And he was capable of doing anything that anybody else on this planet is. Why don't ministers endure? Because they don't take the reality of this world strong enough they don 't consider it strong enough. Elijah was a man who was greatly used of God, probably no greater person in the Old Testament. and we see that incredible scene in exodus, excuse me in Elijah. Um, in um, what book? First, Second Kings. First Kings. I'll get there. It's in there somewhere. First Kings. First Kings 18. Where he is battling the prophets of Baal. And he's superhuman. He, he runs. He jumps. He, he flies. I mean, Elijah is incredible. And then chapter 19. Jezebel says, Boo. And he runs 200 miles to Mount Horeb. Uh, the guy's in shape, you know. Um, but the whole time he's running, what's he saying? Uh, I, I've been zealous for God. I'm the only one left. And, and, and when he finally gets to Mount Horeb, you know, the Lord says, well, what are you doing here? Uh, well, well, you know, well I'm, I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one, you know, I, and now everybody's trying to kill me and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, The Lord says, okay, well, wait a little bit. I'm going to come by. And, you know, so he waits through the storm and all that. Finally, the still small voice. And uh, the Lord says, well, Elijah, what are you doing here? He tells again all this kind of poor me stuff. And then the Lord says, okay, I've heard you. Now go back and anoint everybody else because your job's finished. I don't really need you, Elijah. Elijah. Wow. Elijah had to come face to face with his own futility, his own mortality, his own limits. He'd been greatly used. Thank you. You've done your job. Now go on. We all need something like that from God to tell us, look, we're good. We're all his creation, we're important to him. We're special to him. But we're creatures with limitations. And we live in a world under a curse of sin and death. So where do we put our faith? Where do we put our hope? Where do we hold our hope? We have to hold it in Christ. The story of Adniram Judson is to me, a fascinating story. I I love missionary stories. Uh, I have missionaries in my family. I admire their courage and strength. The story is told of Adoniram Judson asking for the hand of Anne Hasseltine. Young people committed to missions. 1812. He writes to Anne Hasseltine's father. You all probably know this quote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? What if you were Anne Hasseltine's father? Would you have locked her in the basement? Would you have... Done anything you could to keep her away from this crazy man? He let her go. What I think the strength of Judson and others like him was that they understood where they were going, they understood the nature of this world, and their hope was not in this world. He knew they were going to die. They were never going to see family again. Ann Hasseltine died within 14 years. He continued on for 40 years of ministry in Burma. And today, the Karen and other people from Burma, uh, by the millions, are indebted to that ministry. But they went out with absolutely clear eyes about the nature of the world they were entering. And almost as soon as they got there, The British India Company wouldn't let them come into India. Uh, They were opposed at every turn. The war between the English and and the Burmese put Adoniram Judson in jail. And poor Anne had to come and try to bring food to him and care for him. And in her very last year of life, she was pregnant, trying to care for him. And she just gave out and died. We need a generation of people that go into ministry with their hope only in Jesus Christ. Paul says hope that is seen is not hope. Why? Because anything that we could see in this world would be a false hope. Our real hope as Christians is in a world beyond this world, is in a resurrection beyond the life that we see here. We stake our life. We stake our existence on the fact that there is something more, something that Kohelet did not know about, that there is life beyond, there's a kingdom to come. No, we don't see it yet. But that's where our hope is. And if we are wise, if we understand, then we will not put our hope in anything in this world. And Paul goes beyond that. It is a salvation not only that is in a world beyond, but it is a salvation that is much bigger than any one of us. It is a cosmic salvation. It is a salvation that encompasses this entire creation. Because this creation needs to be redeemed. Every part of it needs to be saved. And we hold the message and the hope. We hold the message as we preach and teach about Jesus, that will change people's lives. But we err and we fail when we help our people only focus on this life, on how to have a better bank account, on how to get along with their neighbors. All that's good, and I believe the Christian faith helps us to get along. The Christian faith helps us to to be uh, people of integrity. All those are good, but we can't... Focus only on making better lives in this world. If we do, our hope is misplaced. Your hope ultimately is in Jesus. That's what the old-timers knew. That's how they endured. That's how they hung in there. That is my concern. That we will face our futility. And we'll find the real hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room right now. We are all somehow, some way committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether we are teacher or whether we are student, our whole existence is caught up with taking the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Help us to understand, Lord, that you came into this world and you lived it as a repentant sinner, even though you, were not, you had no sin. You knew your destiny was death, but your hope was in God. Help us, Lord, To know how to follow. To follow you. To deny ourselves. To take up our cross. To follow you. To lose our life in this world. That we may gain it in you. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a great hope. Help us to look to the author and perfecter of our faith today. Help us to know you. Give us your hope.